Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome back to this, the February edition of the Heredity Podcast. On the show this month, we find out how scientists are using genetic history to help determine the fate of Alaskan cattle. And we delve into the impacts of bear predation on wild salmon. Way up in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, scattered off the bitter coast of Alaska, sits Chirikoff Island. There's kind of a a string of islands that that come off Alaska, and it's one of those islands, and it's really one of the more remote islands off the coast of Alaska. This is Jared Decker from the University of Missouri. He's particularly interested in Chirikoff because of a group of animals which lives there. Historically, uh, from previous uses of the island, it has feral cattle on it. These cattle have been brought onto the island by humans at various points in history, but have since become feral. So these are cattle that were once domesticated, um, but now basically have little to no human interaction. Jared and his team want to find out more about the history of this remote population of cattle. Where did they come from? Who brought them there? And could their history make them unique? I gave him a call to find out more. He started by telling me what the cattle look like. They're probably about average size. Uh, They are a little bit hairier just because of the climate that they're dealing with. Uh, And they also have some kind of unique color patterns. So uh, there's some that have white faces, uh, like you would typically see in Hereford cattle. And there's others that have spots all over their body uh, that we sometimes see in cattle from Russia. And this uniqueness is very much what you've been looking into in your paper. You're trying to work out what the makeup of these cattle are. You know, where did they come from? Yeah, so one of the things that I'm always interested in is can we use genetic information to piece together history? We're actually able to do a pretty fine-scale picture, paint a very fine-scale picture of what happened with the cattle on these islands. It appears that... Russian cattle appeared first on the island, then about 120 or so years ago, we had um, cattle from the United States put on the island, and then uh, that continued up until about 40 years ago, when we probably had the last wave of Hereford cattle brought to the island. So you say you're using the wonders of genetics. Tell me a bit more about that. What exactly did you do to find out this family tree, as it were, of the cattle on Chirikoff Island? In cattle genetics, we have uh, a wonderful tool that we call a SNP chip. Basically, what a SNP chip allows you to do is look at DNA variants across the entire uh, set of chromosomes of cattle. And 
we're able to look at thousands of, of DNA variants simultaneously in a very high throughput manner. And so using data from about 40,000 of these DNA variants, we can compare uh, 10 of these Cherkoff Island cattle to 136 other breeds of cattle. Now, this sounds like a fascinating exercise in history, but there are more practical applications for this as well. The U.S. government is interested in making these this island a nature preserve, and that, that poses a problem when it comes to the cattle. The cattle aren't native to the island. They've been introduced there by humans. So if we really want to manage the island as kind of a pristine wildlife refuge, um, having the cattle on the island can be problematic. So one of the questions we wanted to know is, are these uh, cattle unique? And if so, what makes them unique? So one of the things that we found is that these cattle are unique in terms that it's, it's fairly uncommon to see East Asian cattle mixed with European cattle. But we also saw some evidence that there was actually natural selection acting upon uh, this population of cattle on Cherkoff Island, and that possibly they were being selected for uh, disease resistance or other uh, fitness traits that allowed them to survive on the island. And so then when we think about improving the breeds that we use for agricultural production, perhaps there's genetic variation in Cherkoff Island cattle that is useful in, in modern agricultural production. So what do you think the future of the Cherkoff Island cattle looks like? That's a very good question. So what is going to happen to these cattle in the future? One of the scenarios is that the cattle are simply uh, removed from the island and they cease to exist. Another option could be that the cattle are, are removed from the island and taken somewhere else to be raised by farmers and ranchers who are interested in the historical nature of this population of cattle. The third scenario that we could do is really take a comprehensive sampling of the DNA of these of the cattle on these islands and store that DNA for further scientific research. And so we actually kind of take a snapshot of that population in time to be used later on as uh, genetic and genomic research of cattle. Would you have a preference for one of those three options as a scientist? So I think that perhaps storing the DNA information might be the most pragmatic approach. As, as a lover of cattle, I would also love for uh, some rich farmer to decide that he's going to sample cattle from the island and, and continue the breed on, on his farm. That was Jared Decker from the University of Missouri. We're staying in Alaska for our next story, but we're moving from one dinner table favourite to another. It's out with beef and in with salmon. Sockeye salmon live in and around the northern Pacific. Most of them spend much of their life at sea, but they hatch in freshwater lakes and rivers, returning to their birthplace only once to reproduce at the end of their life. And it's during this time in freshwater that they come into contact with bears. The bears feast on the salmon as they return to spawn, and this caught the attention of Jocelyn Lynn, who was based at the University of Washington at the time. She wanted to find out how these hungry bears could impact the salmon population. 
I gave her a call to find out more. I did this study when I was a graduate student at the University of Washington, and I focused on salmon populations in particular as a really good system to look at how populations are subjected to different evolutionary pressures in nature. Tell me about the salmon populations in particular that you looked into. The University of Washington has a program called the Alaska Salmon Program, and they have several field camps, um, one of which that I worked at was in the Wood River Lake system. And so this is an interconnected lake system, and sockeye salmon are one of the dominant species there. So it's a really great place to work to see the salmon populations and see the predation, the different uh, environments that the salmon uh, use when they're in a fairly unaltered habitat. Mm, And you mentioned predation, and that was quite key to this study. Where there are salmon, then sometimes there are bears. Yes, there are often bears if they have the opportunity to access the salmon. And you were looking specifically at brown bears. In the Wood River Lake system and other areas in Alaska, there are healthy populations of brown bears, and they are active during the summer when the salmon are returning into the freshwater streams to spawn. And so they go, the bears go out to the streams, and they often fish for and kill quite a few salmon. There are various different ways that that kind of predation can impact a population of salmon. Can you tell me about how, what kind of impacts they can have? So at a very basic level, bears can have a demographic impact on those populations. And by demographic, I just mean that the bears are able to kill salmon and remove individuals from the population. In addition to that, bears can have selective effects on populations. So there has been a lot of good work done previously seeing if bears, for example, are preferentially killing larger salmon, um, which does seem to be a preference that they show. um, And also, they tend to kill fish that are often more freshly arrived in the streams. And over time, that selective pressure, in theory, could change the whole population of the salmon. Is that the idea? Uh, Yes. So predation, among other uh, different factors, can, in theory, change the population. Maybe the body size, maybe the stream entry timing. So when the fish enter the streams to spawn, um, there are lots of different traits that can be affected. And so how did you go about investigating this? We had two streams that were fairly small, so maybe about 200 to 500 individual salmon returning each summer to spawn. We sampled the streams very thoroughly, so basically we were trying to sample every single fish that was uh, returning to these two streams that we were looking at. Um, In addition to getting the DNA samples, we were walking the streams uh, every day to see what was going on with the fish, how much bear activity there was. Uh, We decided we could use that information to see look at reproductive success of individual salmon in these populations um, and to investigate selective effects from bears. So you have this incredibly detailed um, data that you're gathering on these populations. Put me out of my misery. How did predation impact them? What we saw um, in our study was that bears can have these substantial effects demographic effects on the wild salmon populations in that we had two years that we were comparing. And so in the year where we saw high bear predation, the fish were less reproductively successful. So in one population, we saw an average of 0.4 returning adult offspring produced per parent uh, fish. Whereas in the year with lower predation, they were producing an average of 1.4 returning adult offspring. So it was a pretty substantial difference. Now, that was the demographic effects. What about these more subtle evolutionary impacts that we mentioned earlier? With the evolutionary effects, uh, we were somewhat surprised to find that patterns of selection 
were fairly consistent between the high predation and low predation years. So the characteristics of the fittest fish in the high predation year were similar to those in the low predation year. And so their size or whether or not they were likely or unlikely to be predated didn't seem to impact their reproductive success? Yes, we didn't see that the body size of the fish uh, was a strong indication of how reproductively successful they would be. That does sound surprising to me. You know, if if larger fish are preferred by bears, it seems to be advantageous to not be so large. (laughs) Yes, um, that is true. But what we thought might be the case in this situation was that these populations are small and they're spawning in these very shallow streams. So there's only about less than 10 centimeters of water depth um, often in the summer. And so sometimes when we did see the bears go in and kill the fish, they were killing a lot of the fish that were present at that given time. So it's possible we have a smaller population. The stochastic effects and sporadic predation uh, were not having very defined selective uh, effects. Now, salmon are very important fish from a fisheries perspective. And when we fish salmon, essentially what we're doing is being predators of those salmon. Do your results have any impacts on the way we might treat fisheries in the future? I think it is important to remember that humans can have evolutionary effects on salmon populations and other fish populations. For this study, I think the value is that we were looking at evolutionary and ecological pressures on wild salmon under fairly natural conditions. So I think it's good to consider what kinds of pressures uh, fish populations are facing in nature and also consider the ones, the anthropogenic effects that we might have on them um, to have a better sense of how we might manage the populations effectively, help maintain natural levels of variability in both genetics and in the um, physical traits that the fish have. That was Jocelyn Lin, who's now working for the non-profit organization Ocean Outcomes in Portland, Oregon. And that's all, folks, for this episode of the Heredity Podcast. Tune in again next month. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.